The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. I'm an MDiv student with two semesters to go, and then I am (laughs) still here. You hope two semesters to go. Yes, and I hope to still be here. So I guess my new boss will have something to say about that. Uh, anyway, I am here with Dr. Joseph A. Piper, Jr., outgoing president, but uh, full-time faculty member in the systematics department here at Greenville Seminary. And we're doing our regular uh, faith in practice segment, which we confess and apologize for how long we've been uh away. But we're so glad to be back and to be in person and to be handling some of the questions that our faithful listeners have submitted to us in months uh, of a bygone era, so to speak. But Dr. Piper, thank and you for joining And we're not even really me. quite six feet apart, are we? Um, it's about six feet Close. apart from Close shoulder to shoulder, so yeah, we're okay. Right. We're okay. Uh, Dr. Piper, would you please um, open our time with a word of prayer? I'd be glad to, Zach. Thank you. Almighty God, Jehovah, Adonai, Lord and Master, Husband, the ruler of our lives, the Father who has reached down to us from eternity with a perfect love, the one who's chosen us in Christ and given us to him, the one who came in our stead as God the Son and procured our eternal redemption and sonship, the one who indwells us by the Spirit. We bless you and praise you. You indeed are great and glorious Your glory defies our imagination. You are incomprehensible. Even your love to us is incomprehensible. You're long-suffering, gracious, slow to anger. We thank you that you're our God. We thank you for uh, the rest that we have in Christ, for the pardon of sin, for the comfort and assurance of salvation. We thank you that we have a sure and certain word, and the Spirit who inspired the word has been promised to help us to understand the word. We ask that he would function today. Uh, that the answers would be biblically consistent and faithful to your word, helpful, Lord, to our hearers. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. And in case I wasn't clear, there has been some confusion about what Dr. Piper's role here at the seminary will be upon his completing his tenure as president at the end of June of this year. But he will be here continuing as a full-time faculty member, taking on student mentees again, and uh, or advisees, so to speak, and enjoying his lunches, which will now have been freed up of the administrative work he was doing before. And we are uh, looking forward to having Dr. Master here starting July 1st in the role of president of the seminary. And uh, he and Dr. Piper will be working very closely together. Dr. Piper, let's dive into these questions. Our first question comes from Bill Johnson of Greenville, South Carolina. Always good to hear from you, Bill. If scientists succeed in cloning a human being, would the clone be predestined in like manner as the original? In other words, if God predestined the original to salvation, would God predestine the clone likewise to salvation? Well, we're only taking the question because it allows me to get into something uh, better. Of course, the uh, condition, if scientists succeed in cloning a human being, uh, is impossible. It's impossible because a human being is body and a soul. And uh, the whole idea of cloning comes from a, a materialistic worldview, that all we are is matter made up of cells and neurons, nerve endings and things like that, brains. Uh, So if a scientist could create some living thing, whatever it would be, it would not be a human being because a scientist cannot create a soul. Biblically or theologically, there are two uh, main groups with respect to the origin of the soul. Uh, There are the creationists, Uh, This would probably be the mainline Reformed position. And the creationist believes that at the moment of conception that God creates a new soul uh, that he brings into a living union uh, with the uh, physical uh, being that had been conceived through the union of the parents. Uh, The other view 
uh, is traditionism. And th that view is, is that uh, in procreation, uh, the soul as well as the body uh, is created out of the uh, parents. Uh, there are problems with both of those uh, positions. So what I've been encouraging students to think through is a hybrid position. And that is uh, something of both. That God would take the soul uh, of the parents and make a new soul rather than make a brand new um, soul creation ex nihilo, which is what the creationists would say, that in some way in the process, God is creating the body and the soul through procreation. But regardless, the soul is of origin from God alone. And thus, uh, a scientist could never create a human being. Bill, we thank you for the question, and in all seriousness, we hope that was a helpful answer. If there are any follow-ups, particularly on Dr. Piper's um, hybrid view, is traducian creationism or creationist traducianism, however you want to phrase it, uh, please send them in to us. We'd love to hear uh, from anyone who wants to dig into biblical anthropology in that way. Our next question comes from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina, and this is a question that weighs heavily on on many of our minds and hearts, in the final judgment, will our sins be made public to other people? And by our, I think he's meaning in, particu in particular regenerate believers, justified saints. I think we recognize that the, the sins of the reprobate, the sins of reprobate angels are going to in some way be judged publicly. We must assert that we're, as, even as redeemed men and women, that we're going to be judged for our sins. The Bible's quite clear about that. We're going to give an answer done for every deed in the flesh. But the question is, uh, is that going to be a public uh, proclamation to all the other uh, redeemed people standing around uh, as they go through the list of Piper's sins? We'll be there for a few hundred years. But um, I don't think the Bible allows us to say that. Uh, the character of God, uh, there's two things to keep in mind. One is our judgment is going to be a manifestation of the beauty and glory and grace of God. So in some way, a declaration of what we have been redeemed from, what Christ did for us, would be appropriate. But also the tenderness of God, uh, that uh, he loves us and uh, deals with us so tenderly even now. So I just, I'm not very comfortable thinking that at judgment there's going to be a great uh, public display of the sins of the elect. I think we would all be very surprised at that. I mean, uh, how else, how does that comport with the confessional language of how we describe that day of judgment where we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted? Mm -hmm. um, well, to be acquitted, you have to be acquitted from something. So that's the... I guess that's, that's the rub. That's the rub. Openly acknowledged and acquitted. Well... Something worth thinking about more, but in terms of any kind of public display that would be embarrassing or whatever, although I guess you can't be embarrassed once you're perfect. And tedious. But well, I guess if we have all eternity, and we're not going to be conscious years. of time, it seems. There's yeah. going to be a whole different relationship to time at that point. So, but uh, let me put it this way whatever happens, not one of us will be uncomfortable. There you go. Here we know we would be very uncomfortable. But whatever God does for his perfectly redeemed saints at that point, we will not be uncomfortable. If, in fact, uh, the litany of my sins to somebody is made public that Christ would be all the more honored, I'll just be all the more grateful for my salvation. Very good. Thank you for the question, Chad, and thank you, Dr. Piper, for that. Thank Chad for his faithfulness listening. He always is sending us good questions. Yeah. This next guy, I don't know. <laughs> and this next question comes from yours truly, Zach Groff of Greer, South Carolina. Greer. And Greer, South Carolina. That's right, y'all. And so this is a question that, that I came up with in conversation with a friend of mine who is a, a Baptist pastor in Kentucky. And this is what I wrote. I've heard it claimed that since circumcision is an initiation rite of a national rather than household or family covenant with Abraham and the physical nation of Israel descending from him, then we should consider baptism to be an initiation rite for the spiritual Israel that descends from Abraham as spiritual offspring united to Christ. See Galatians chapter 3, as indicated by credible profession of faith. 
The same person accuses paedobaptists of breaking continuity with the Old Testament practice of initiation into the covenant community because we restrict infant baptism to the children of believers and do not extend it to subsequent generations when unbelief interrupts multi-generational faithfulness. What do you make of this understanding of baptism's relation to circumcision in the first place and the subsequent objection to paedobaptism in the second place? Thank you, Mr. Groff. Well, the first part of the question uh, makes a both-and into an either-or statement, failing to understand that, yes, a circumcision did have a relationship nationally, but we cannot forget that Israel was the visible church that had been made uh, a nation as well. And so, yes, to belong to the visible church, you belong to the nation. Uh, and it would have political ramifications at that point. And it was, as well, a spiritual sign, which is quite clear in Deuteronomy 10, 16, and 36, or 10, 6, and 30, 16. Uh, and so there's, there's, not a, uh, there's not a problem there. The problem comes from your questioners, uh, the man who spoke to you, Zach, in terms of uh, failing to understand that uh, in Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham, he established the visible church. And so this, in establishing the visible church, where now it's no longer simply going to be a family. And that's what Paul picks up on Galatians 3 now, that we all are the seed of uh, Abraham if we've had this baptism and are incorporated into the visible church. And so it was a sign of regeneration, the sign of mortification. It definitely had spiritual signs, but it also had physical or national ramifications. So um, in the re progression of redemption, when the church is no longer now tied to a particular nation, but is transnational, we're still the family of God, and we are now incorporated in the family of God by uh, our baptism. Now, uh, there's probably a, an assumption here on your friend's part uh, in the Old Covenant, if a person was put out of the covenant, his children weren't allowed to be circumcised. Well, I don't know where you'd ever get that. They, uh, they became apostate. And so they would have not been circumcised, but they would have come back into the covenant. They then would have been circumcised as a uh, Gentile came into the covenant. And that's the ideal. Uh, we recognize that uh, there was not a, nearly the kind of discipline that should have been going on because of the remnant um, aspect of the Old Covenant Church, uh, that the, the truly elect were, were a remnant. And so we see generation after generation of apostasy. Uh, perhaps it's interesting that the, the children of all those that apostatized in the wilderness were not circumcised. And so when they crossed into uh, the land, the very first thing that God did was circumcise everyone who had been born since uh, they began the travels 38 years before. So that generation was cut off, and now this new generation brought back into the church. So I, I think that we don't really have a problem there with, um, what was he says, Old Testament practice initiation into the covenant community. Um, do not extend it to subsequent generations when unbelief interrupts. Well, no, if real unbelief interrupted uh, the person, the Leviticus is quite clear. They'd be cut off from the community, either put out by excommunication, what we'd call excommunication, or put to death. So I'm not sure you can build the kind of case that your friend's building here. As we, as we think about this, we also have to understand there is a progress, I alluded to this, in the history of redemption. So with the promise of the new covenant, the remnant now in the true church uh, is going to be uh, the unconverted. The great majority of professing believers in Bible-believing churches that are practicing church discipline uh, are going to be converted. And so it's a whole different picture as well in the history of redemption than, uh, by God's grace. If anyone has a follow-up on that, please send it our way, especially uh, credo-baptist brothers of ours who might be wrestling with this idea or want to hear a pedo-baptist uh, answer directly some of the, the questions that you would pose. 
to a Reformed Paedo-Baptist. Um, but thank you for uh, the question to my anonymous friend, and I will not thank myself for submitting it, because <laughs> that would be gratuitous. Our next question comes from Miguel Del Toro, Jr. of Peoria, Arizona. And he would like Dr. Piper to explain the fundamental differences between five evangelical and Presbyterian denominations with regard to theology, adherence to, and perspectives on the Westminster Standards, especially regarding subscription, and ecclesiology or polity. And he asks this question because discerning the differences among these particular denominations can be puzzling since to the uninitiated or even to one who has been around the Reformed and Presbyterian world for some time, these denominations all claim to share in common an evangelical uh, appraisal of scripture, a, a, a confessional um, standard, and Presbyterian church government. And the, the denominations he lists are ones that would be familiar to regular listeners of the podcast or to members of NAPARC here in this country. The Bible Presbyterian Church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, and the Presbyterian Church in America. And in full disclosure, Dr. Piper is a charter member of the Presbyterian Church in America, and I am licensed to preach in a presbytery of the PCA as well. And so that's probably the denomination we are most familiar with, but we have students in, in our student body from each of these five uh, denominations. And so we have some familiarity with each of them and a high regard for uh, men serving in each of them as well. Yes, and I'm actually uh, pretty well acquainted with all five of them because of interacting not just with our students, but with uh, leadership in those various uh, denominations. <clears throat> the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian, well, let, let me say what we all have in common. And that is all five of these hold to uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechism, as their public confession of faith. Now, we'll get to the point, they don't do that in equally the same way. But uh, bottom line is, th these are the documents outside of Scripture that are going to be most binding in all five of those denominations. Do you subscribe to the catechisms in the ARP and the RPCNA? Or do they just subscribe to the confession? I don't know about that. Because the Scottish denominations only subscribe to the confession, and they have a genetic relation to them. I, I just don't know. But the fact of the matter is the theology is the same right. the content of the things. The there. catechisms are but the didactic expressions. Now, there are yeah. minute differences, but I don't think in the framers' mind there would have been any theological uh, differences of no major sort. So all would be uh, confessional, all would be evangelical, which means that they believe uh, in the gospel, proclamation, salvation through Christ alone. All would be uh, involved in uh, missions, evangelism, inerrant church planting. Well. And yes, all would have uh, a high view of Scripture, uh, inerrantist, as Zach would say. Uh, the Bible is the Word of God. Infallible means it's without error in whatever it teaches. And that means history or science or whatever else, although it's not a textbook about those things. The sufficiency of Scripture means whatever it speaks to, it does so uh, without error. A little bit of history. The Bible Presbyterians, Orthodox Presbyterians, uh, formed first in the 1930s. Well, the ARP and the oh, RPCNA do antedate the OPC. But you're right. Yeah, there's, there are two different, historically two speaking, two tracks different streams. Here. Yeah. So the, uh, the ARPC goes back to uh, Scotland. The uh, RPCNA goes back to Northern Ireland. And uh, in the migrations then uh, to America, and particularly uh, for the ARPC to the south, uh, and to the RPCNA uh, to the north, north, and and uh, then eventually to the west. Uh, so they brought a bit of a different flavor. They both initially were exclusive psalmist, uh, whereas now the RPC and A is. And I'll come back and try to explain these terms. The ARP uh, no longer is that way. So uh, they they formed. They both, uh, in fact, at one point they were also one denomination, if I remember correctly, and then separated. Um, but I don't know as much about the history as I know currently what's, what's going on with these. The OPC formed, and then the Bible Presbyterian has gone through about six iterations, 
they initially left the OPC over millennialism and, at least on the part of some of their ministers, a dispensationalism. This was in the late 1930s, shortly after the formation of the OPC itself. Right, very, very soon. There were articles in the old Presbyterian Guardian uh, that they took exception to where people like Professor Murray were trying to teach a broader eschatological distinctive from premillennialism. <clears throat> they were initially in the BPC uh, rigid, second-degree separatist fundamentalist. Uh, they, the man that started the group was a very interesting fellow, uh, Dr. McIntyre. Uh, but what's happened is they've had some splits so that the a name that would have been here and is not here now it was the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. This was a group that left, uh, amongst others, but a portion of that group left the Bible Presbyterian Church. But what God's done in His grace, the Bible Presbyterian Church now is no longer exclusively premillennial. They have amills and postmills. They no longer have any of their fundamentalistic uh, requirements with respect to the moderate use of, of alcohol or tobacco or things like that. Uh, and they are confessionally very conservative. Now, they, one difference will be is that their catechism, uh, they did amend the catechism to teach that there would be two um, resurrections to follow the pre-mill, whereas the, the original Westminster Standards teaches but one resurrection, the end of the age. But they have, been, have become, they have grown the most, they've matured the most in the, the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Theologically. Yes, and numerically, too. They're, they're, they're been... planning churches. They're very active on the mission field. The OPC, kind of the uh, in the line of BPC, OPC, PCA, the granddaddy of us all, uh, came out uh, also as part of the fundamentalist movement uh, when uh, first they separated from Princeton and, and formed Westminster Seminary, and then when Machen was put out, of the denomination, they started the OPC. The originators were very reformed, but a lot of the early students were all guys from Wheaton, and they brought with them a bit of a, again, fundamentalism uh, bag. So they, they were probably, you look at the OPC now, they probably were not as purely reformed uh, in those early days uh, as they've become. Uh, they, though, uh, have a very high view of the confession of faith and the catechisms. Now, they've got a bit of, of what I would call a confessional schizophrenia. They will not allow a man to take an exception to the standards, um, but they have plenty of people in the denomination that take exception to the standards uh, in, in certain areas. Um, I think of paedo communion or... Uh, creation or whatever so but that's not formally on the books evidently it's it's i never understood it um, but, and to uh, be clear the opc and thus the bpc as well came out of the northern church whereas the pca comes out of the southern mainline presbyterian church and so you do have two different tracks there as well even within the broader mainline American Presbyterian And I'll talk church. about that when we get to ecclesiology and polity in, in particular. And that's where we'll have most bearing. So the OPC is uh, uh, a very faithful denomination. They've got a growing, aggressive uh, church planting program in America. They're full of Greenville grads planting these churches. Every time I read their magazine, I'm, they've got feature articles on fellows that are Greenville grads, so that's good to see. Uh, their, their foreign missions is much more consistent with the original Southern Presbyterian Thornwellian missions. Uh, they will only put a man on the mission field when they've raised his support for him. He does not have to raise his support. He doesn't come back and have to go around. Uh, he does itinerate, but it's not to raise support. Uh, now, on the one hand, that cuts down the number of men they can put on the field. The other hand, it's a much more consistent oversight than of the of the missionary. Um, the ARPC, after they uh, did uh, separate, whatever caused that from what's now the RPCNA, 
initially with psalm singing. I was up taking some people on a tour in the Shenandoah Valley, and there's a very famous church in Lexington where uh, Dr. Graham was, and Dr. Smith wrote a biography of Dr. Graham. We started to get published. And right across the street, there's an ARP church. So I called doctors, and they both go back into the early 1800s. And I said, what was going on here? He says, well, he said, the ARP formed in Virginia when, when uh, uh, Reverend Graham started singing hymns. So those that did not want to sing hymns went over to the ARP. So you can go up to the Shenandoah Valley, and there's some fantastic historical churches there that all were in the one Presbyterian church in America, and then uh, uh, went into the ARP to sing psalms. The ARP, uh, a number of years ago, began to go liberal. And a group of uh, their students, when they finished their university training, came to Reform Seminary in its very early days. And they were in my class and right around my class and it's what God did. It's quite remarkable. Dr. Smith encouraged them to go back to their denomination. And they all were from, in, in the ARP, family carries much more weight than it does probably in any of the other denominations in terms of who you know. These guys were all from blue blood ARP families. And they all got churches. And the ARP, through God's grace, again, Dr. Smith's, in a sense, the, the fountain of all this, um, uh, God reform that denomination. And they have increasingly become more conservative and more reformed. And Reform Theological Seminary continues to be a, a strong influence toward those ends. Particularly in Charlotte. Yes. Yeah. So in that process, they were moving towards women's ordination, and they'd gotten deacon, women deacons ordained. And then as they became increasingly uh, reformed, We've got some n number of fine uh, student graduates in, in the ARP now as well. Um, they, it's, it's a carryover that more and more their younger men do not want. And so I, th we, I understand that this Senate, they're going to have a motion uh, to stop ordaining women deacons, grandfather the church that have them, but not let them do any, any new ones. And they also have become more outward-looking, uh, in, in the last few years, uh, I've interacted with one of the press tree that's here uh, where the seminary is located and have been very blessed in having fellowship uh, with those men. The Bible Presbyterians had their own college for a long time up in New Jersey, uh, and then they had a thing down in Florida. They now, what they have is a, a seminary in Tacoma, Washington, very small. We try to work with them and cooperate with them. The OPC never had a seminary. Westminster was initially kind of their um, de facto seminary. But right now we're getting uh, a very large number of OPC students. ARP has both a college and a seminary called Erskine in due west, South Carolina. <laughs> um, and both of those institutions were also going the liberal direction of the church uh, and have... Uh, Particularly the seminary, I think, has had a, a good turnaround. The college is suffering, as many private liberal arts colleges are suffering today, and barely keeping its head above water. The uh, RPCNA, called the Covenanters, of, of the five, this is the group that uh, is committed to uh, singing only the Psalms, 150 Psalms, without musical accompaniment. That for them is pretty much the height of Reformed spirituality. You'll find then within this group very much the kind of mixture you would have in the ARP or in the PCA or the OPC. Theologically. Theologically and worship. Uh, I mean, you can uh, contemporary worship singing psalms only. If you can put that one together, then uh, it's... Uh, so they're, they're quite a mixed bag, as long as you sing psalms, though. But... Again, they've got different presbyteries, and some of these presbyteries are really uh, good and strong. I enjoy those men very much. Others of them are much more traditional uh, covenanter. Um, they have also a college and a seminary. The college is Geneva College. It is a bit of a mixed governance because it's got uh, more people on the board than simply. They have to have a majority of, of their denomination on the board. 
Uh, I was up there to preach for a chapel for them at West, well, actually it was a community service for Reformation and really enjoyed my time uh, with their fairly new president and preaching in uh, one of their churches. Uh, and then they have a seminary, which is uh, also um, a, really a good seminary in Pittsburgh. Uh, and uh, we, we consider them a sister seminary, and they uh, also are doing a good job. We've had some of our guys that wanted to work in that denomination transfer from here and finish there. Um, people have taught for us, have taught there. Then the PCA, uh, which is the youngster on the block. And the big dog on the block. And the big dog on the block as well. Um, so as Zach said, the OPC came out of the Northern Presbyterian Church in the 30s. The PPC shortly, within two years, out of the OPC. The ARP and RPCNA uh, had more direct roots to uh, Northern Ireland and Scotland, where the PCA came out of initially the Southern Presbyterian Church, which was called, uh, the, the real name was the Presbyterian Church U.S. Um, when the war between the states began, uh, the, there was a Presbyterian Church in America, or of America, and they had a general assembly. Many of the southern men, after their states had already seceded, went to that assembly in the north. And their hope was to keep the church above the fray and not divide the church uh, over this. Uh, there uh, was a man uh, named Gardner Spring who, in every other respect, uh, good book on preaching, good book on prayer, but he had a resolution that uh, everybody, every minister had to take a vow to the union. Uh, that was opposed even by men like Hodge. Um, but uh, that denomination passed that, so they effectually put out uh, the Southern men. Uh, they went home, and they started the Presbyterian Church of the Confederacy. Uh, and then when the War Between the States was finished, they became the Presbyterian Church in the United States. They were probably... 30 years behind the Northern Presbyterian Church because they were... In terms of liberalizing. Yeah, they were much more conservative and confessional. And so um, they stayed faithful much longer. So the PCUS then uh, uh, had, a, I think, five seminaries. Uh, and uh, the most conservative one was... Uh, Columbia Seminary that had been started in Columbia, South Carolina, but it was run by the Synod. Uh, so in Presbyterianism, you've got the local session, that's the elders. You've got Presbytery, which is a smaller geographical area made up of a number of churches. And then in the larger denomination, you'll have a Synod, which is a, a larger geographical area. It'll have about three Presbyteries and then General Assembly. So the Synods initially ran the seminaries. And so Columbia uh, served uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina. It was the most conservative. And so for the longest time, the men that were conservative in the PCUS had come through Columbia uh, Seminary. But by 1971, uh, the church had become uh, uh, clearly uh, uh, liberal on its view of Scripture, uh, gospel. Ordination of women. Ordination of women, uh, abortion, political issues. And so uh, the PCA then formed in 1971 with the intention of carrying on the historic uh, distinctives of the Southern Presbyterian Church, commitment to evangelism and the Reformed faith and inerrancy of Scripture. So today, though, of the five, I would say the PCA probably is the most mixed theologically because we changed our approach to the confession a number of years ago to what's called good faith subscription. And that ball really started rolling in earnest as such after the 1983 joining and receiving with the old fundamentalist party, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, and the bringing in of Covenant Seminary and College, as well as a different approach to polity and more of a new school, or self-consciously new school Presbyterian yes. influence. I think yes. if we look at the history of the PCA, it wasn't a distilled old school Presbyterian witness from 1973 forward, but it wasn't self-consciously uh, new school in the way that the RPCES. Yeah, and I said 71, that's when I was ordained. 73 is what you were trying to tell me is when they were... We formed December of 1973. The steering committee was already at work yeah. in 1971, 
But yeah, 1973 was the first General Assembly. Right. Which you were at? I was. So, um, with respect to the commitment to the standards, uh, the BPC uh, is probably the most consistent right now, I think, in my mind, of, of the five. It's also uh, the smallest, so yeah. that makes some sense just in terms of scale. ARP is probably the most diverse at this point. RPCNA, as I said, have their distinctives, but within within that, uh, they still would be probably more confessional across the board than, say, the PCA. Well, it's it's tough because they have an element that we don't have. They have this testimony, testimony and if you look at some of the the details on their adherence to the testimony, it, it even kind of because it's at odds with the confession yes. of faith at points, and you have to go with the testimony, but the language isn't particularly clear. It's kind of like sorting through canon law <laughs> and, and case law or common law, so to speak. And so, um, you know, it's 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 like comparing apples and oranges. But that's the thing I usually highlight when people ask me the difference for confessionalism between the RPs and the and the, good. the other it's guys. Good. Now, in terms of ecclesiology and polity, the of the five, the PCA, because it came out of the old uh, Presbyterian Church U.S., which had a much more biblically-based polity and ecclesiology, with some of the distinctives, such as the parity of the eldership. So we developed in, well, 150 years ago they developed, uh, the concept of a two-and-a-half office view, that the ruling elder was a pastor and not simply a legislator or church governor. And so you had deacons and ruling elders, but the eldership itself was one office. And so the minister shared in the rule and pastoral oversight with the ruling elder. But there was a distinct ordination to preaching. But what that means is that historically the PCA or the Southern Church and now the PCA has had a much higher view of ruling elders. And you'll see this on ordination commissions. You see it at Presbytery uh, where there's a conscious, a self-conscious attempt at General Assembly. Every committee will have equal numbers of, uh, until you get up to these ad hoc committees, but all permanent committees, equal numbers of ruling elders and teaching elders. Um, the Thornwell and approach to missions, uh, bottom-up more than top-down, historically was a part of the PCA's mission strategies. Not as much any longer, although we have a number of presbyteries and churches that are sending them into the mission field, still practicing this idea of bottom-up uh, missions. Now, what I like about the OPC's ecclesiology, I don't like their approach to ruling elders, but I do like the fact that they might have a much higher view of presbytery as the regional church, and they practice that. So whereas in the PCA and in the ARP, uh, the ordinations are normally on a Sunday evening service. In the OPC, they're always either Friday evening or Saturday afternoon. And it's, it's wonderful because churches, people, members of congregations from the various uh, churches in the Presbytery attend those services and are conscious of their being part of this regional church. So the strengths and weaknesses to all of them. But, you know, any, we thank God for all of these. Uh, we thank God for the revival of the Reformed faith. I tell our students, when I finished seminary in 1971, there may be, in all of the South, uh, not... There was a couple OPC churches in, in southern Florida, but say in the Mid-South, uh, I maybe knew of one or two really self-conscious Reformed churches. And now, by God's grace, uh, throughout the South, through what he's done in the PCA, uh, and in the re revival in the ARP, the movement of the OPC uh, into the southern states, uh, the Bible Presbyterians being re reforming, uh, it's a very different uh, world now than it was in 1971, and I, I thank God for it. And, you know, if you look at the history of seminary education in this country, particularly in the tw late 20th century forward, um, 
that growth in a self-conscious reformed witness within Presbyterian churches in the South and even around the country really correlates to, and I think we can draw a strong causal relationship one way or the other, to the growth of self-consciously reformed seminaries. Uh, Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, obviously at the top of our list, but, but also— Particularly the men that Dr. Smith trained. Yeah. That is the group of men that went into all the small southern towns. A lot of them suffered and were misunderstood because these, the conservative churches at best were— a dispensational. Yeah, and dispensational. Uh, and had been getting their Sunday school literature from the denomination, had a lot of problems over there on the, on the women's front and stuff like that. So uh, church history is going to recognize Morton H. Smith as uh, a, a very God-blessed man in the development of the Reformed faith. Founding of the PCA, particularly our Book of Order, which is the most consistently Southern Presbyterian thing we've had until we've spent the last 50 years changing it. Uh, but the principles are still there. And uh, a love for piety and evangelism. Uh, he started two seminaries and has very, very been, been used of God in, in these denominations. And in the OPC as well, not as much, although he did teach for a year at Westminster. Uh, in in Philadelphia and studied there for a year, and as well taught many OPC men who would become OPC ministers here. Right, yes. in yes. his in his old age. Um, one thing I, I do want to add to that, and Dr. Piper could speak to this um, at greater length than I could, or with greater authority. But being a visitor to many of the different assemblies and presbytery meetings of these different denominations, you really get a uh, an insight into how they operate and the cultural differences and how those express themselves in their discussions. Going to an OPC General Assembly meeting, I, I say, um, is kind of like going and you know go, getting down to business. I mean, those guys don't mess around, and they're thorough, and, and they're working hard the whole time. Going to a PCA Assembly meeting is much more like going to a convention, but going to a Presbytery meeting is like going to a church function. And uh, I, haven't, I haven't yet been able to go to a BPC or RPCNA um, meeting, but I have been to the ARP General Synod just up the road um, in in uh, at Bon Clarkin uh, in North Carolina, and that's like a big family reunion with those guys. And so the those differences express themselves in their polity and how they talk through and work through. Well, and I think through. that's a, I appreciate the insight, Zach, because uh, just as as we you know. Dr. McGraw, when he teaches uh, historiography and research and the importance of putting men into a cultural situation, all five of these nominations are shaped culturally. I'm most comfortable in the PCA culturally because I'm a Southerner. And even though now we're a national denomination with 80-something presbyteries, there's still the ethos that's there. Uh, this will probably get me a lot of trouble. Whereas... Uh, up until recently, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has had a more of a northern flavor, more of a blue-collar flavor, perhaps even, which that's, there's nothing to integrate about any of this. I think the thing to realize is, and you know, I, I'd love to see all of us together. Uh, I would love to see a denomination that would allow psalm singers, congregations, and exclusive and, and not. Uh, I think we could do that. Uh, and I would, I would be glad to be a part of it. But we do have to recognize that it's not just theological things. ARP is a very cultural-shaped uh, uh, denomination, and, uh, and the BP is, as well. So uh, um, as much as we, you know, I don't have a problem with denominations as long as we love each other and work together. And that's, you mentioned when we first started, NAPARC. Now that BPs are only uh, observers, but the other five are actually voting members of National Association of Presbyterian Reformed Congregations. And this includes, in addition to the Presbyterians, then the Reformed Church U.S. and the United Reformed Church, uh, which are more of the continental Dutch uh, or German uh, background. And they're both also very fine denominations, could easily be on our list if uh, Miguel had asked about them. Anyway, we spent a lot of time on that. I hope that was helpful, and particularly if you're a new listener or you're tuning in for 
just to catch this segment, I hope that was that was helpful, demystifying of the differences between these different denominations. Now, our next question comes from Sam Morris, and he asks uh, about the nature of the federal union of an unregenerate covenant child to Adam and to Christ. If someone is unregenerate, yet within the outward administration of the covenant of grace, then they would remain under Adam's headship and bear his curse. Christ, however, is the federal head of the covenant of grace, so the unregenerate in some sense must be under the federal headship of Christ, or else they would have no place in his covenant. Are the headships of Adam and Christ mutually exclusive, or is it biblical to say that Christ is the federal head outwardly of an unregenerate covenant child, yet they remain in Adam inwardly? How would we reconcile this approach with Romans 8-9, wherein Paul states that anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Christ? In sum, can one be in the covenant of works and under the covenant of grace at the same time? Surveying the nature of God's relationship to unbelieving Israel in the Old Covenant, it seems the answer would be yes. Well, Sam, you've asked a... uh a Gordian knot kind of question. So I'm going to try to untangle the knot a bit. You might not be happy uh, with my answer and be glad for you to follow up with me later on the podcast. Look, um, in the first place, uh, all are born dead in sin and Adam under God's wrath and condemnation. Uh, We are not in the covenant of works per se because we can no longer ourselves earn salvation by perfect obedience, and Adam lost that for us. We're under the effects of the covenant of works, and we're under the responsibility to obey God perfectly, covenant of works, and we're under the curse of the covenant of works. When a family is converted and they come into the church and they bring their children with them, the children being baptized are incorporated into the membership of the church. Now, the membership of the church is where the covenant of grace is administered. So it's administered in the church, and there is the different terms. Some use the word external, internal. Burkhoff talks about living and legal. Uh, There is an external legal membership in the covenant of grace, and the People who are in the church who are uh, not yet regenerate are still under the benefits of the covenant of grace and under its administration and are not under uh, the uh, covenant of works. Uh, Part of this is the judgment of charity. Um, It's not just children, is it, Uh, Sam? We, Simon the magician, makes profession of faith, baptized, he's under the ministration of Christ and the covenant of grace. He then shows himself to be apostate. He's excommunicated. So I, I think that our children are covenantally under the headship of Adam of, of Christ, and that gives us uh, a nice fulcrum to, in terms of dealing with them, in terms of God's goodness to them. And the covenant benefits, there are benefits that belong to our children even uh, before they are unregenerate. Are, are regenerate, and if they remained unregenerate, they still have had those, uh, the benefits. Now, when they apostatize, they're put out of the church, back into the world. What does Paul say? They're given to the devil, uh, and that's where everybody is that's under Adam, under God's wrath and curse. I hope that helps untangle the knot a bit. Paul's language in Romans 8 9 has a different direction. Here he's actually talking you know, about the nature of true true conversion. He's talking in that passage about those who walk in the Spirit. And if you are in Christ, you, you do walk in the Spirit. You have the Spirit. Thank you, Dr. Piper. And thank you, Sam, for the question. If there are follow-ups on that issue, please send them in, and we'd be happy to pursue this further in future episodes. Our next question is a bit broad and gives Dr. Piper an opportunity to take it in a particular direction. From Carlos Henrique of Pernambuco, Brazil, what is the impact of a humanist view within the church? So let's first define humanism however you want to take the question and then, and then tackle the issue. Well, I'm going to take this for where I think Carlos is coming from, and that is humanism at this point is the view uh, that's in our culture of autonomy. Um, you're either autonomous or theonomist. <laughs> There's no middle ground. Either God is your authority and rules you through his word, or you are your own authority. Now, 
Western culture and uh, Latin American culture as well are increasingly uh, autonomous in their approach to living. So we would say that they are humanist, man-centered, not in the sense of the old humanism of the Renaissance that uh, focused on classical education, things like that, but in terms of autonomy. So you can imagine what this has done to the church because increasingly we find people in the church, office bearers and church members, who do not want to be ruled by the word of God. They want to be ruled uh, by their own uh, independent standard that they've set up. Now those standards will vary from culture to culture, from person to person. But the, the big divide has to do with am I going to be ruled by Christ in this church or am I going to be ruled by some other authority? So what that affects, well, it affects your view of Scripture. It affects your view of the gospel. It affects your view of, well, everything. And worship. I'm going to get there. So then we come over into worship. Um, does it make me happy? Does it please? Does it attract unconverted people? That's all humanism. We can think, well, this really is a gospel motivation. I want to have a worship service that's going to be attractive to uh, the unconverted. But no, that's not the purpose of worship. And so we've changed the purpose of worship according to our standard of authority. Um, people will be converted in our worship. We worship according to God's word, not according to. And so uh, man-centeredness, another way to talk about it. So in the gospel, you're going to be Arminian and have a man-centered approach to a salvation. Are you going to be under the sovereignty of God? Uh, church discipline. We're going to live and let live or give special privileges to certain families in the church. Are we going to seek to be faithful in the governance of the church? Uh, and then, of course, worship. Thank you for the question, Carlos. We have one more question that I would love for us to tackle, Dr. Piper, if we have time. And this comes from Jeff Downs of Mechanicsville, Virginia. He submitted this question months ago before the shutdown, but it has a particular timeliness to it right now here in the middle of May 2020. Jeff asks, some in the Reformed community claim that men should not read books on theology offered by women because women shouldn't be teaching men. On the other hand, we say that women can or should be teaching women. If women can teach other women theology, and they would do so in a group, shouldn't the elders at least read the material that our ladies might use? Wouldn't the reading of the material be a form of protecting the body of Christ from potential false doctrine creeping into the church? And then he continues, I can be convinced otherwise, but I have no problem reading a book such as The Undistracted Widow, Living for God After Losing Your Husband by Carol Cornish, to help me to interact with women who have lost husbands. Have men written on the same topic? Yes, of course. And maybe the argument stops there. But at this point, I have no problem learning from women in this and other areas. And he gives us another example, suffering from Joni Erickson Tada. Dr. Piva, this is timely because of a, of a controversial book that was published by Zondervan recently by um, blogger and podcast host and, uh, and um, housewife theologian Amy Bird, and that has caused quite an uproar even among our constituency and some of our graduates. Um, but focusing on Jeff's question here, should men be reading books authored by women that deal with theological subjects? And if so, when? If not, why not? Well, Jeff, um, I make a distinction between uh, formal teaching of Bible and theology and informal teaching. So where some of these women today, I think, misunderstand Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, which I'll accept one case, I think her name is first, uh, confusing apples and oranges. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla, as a, a married couple, a team, would have people in their home, and they would have theological conversations. They would teach. They'd go back and forth together. They would disciple somebody like Apollos. So my wife and I do that. We have, throughout our ministry, we've had people in our homes, and she is complete partner in the conversation and has many important insights in that. But that is a conversation, and it's very important, I think, to make that distinction, that that's a conversation. A book, for me, is a conversation. It's not, it has no authority outside the Bible. Well, the confession of faith, but confession, the, the Bible, the great authority, confession of faith, secondary authority. No other book has authority. Uh, that writer has no authority over me. So I can argue with the book. 
I can tear the pages out. I can throw it into the, to the trash bin. And so uh, I don't have a problem uh, theoretically reading a book by a woman, even uh, a book Zach was just mentioning before we started, a, a historic uh, approach to writer's own Job uh, by a lady. I, I have no problem reading that book. Uh, just as I would be glad to sit down with her and uh, talk to her, know her, know her ideas, and and, and whatever is that. So, uh, I, the book's a conversation. That's what reading is. We need to do more reading in that way, where we're actually interacting uh, with the book. Now, your other point, though, is very important, and I've seen so many churches uh, get in big trouble because the elders did not preview the material that the women were studying. Now, on this very podcast, uh, in an article I've written, uh, I, I do say that I think that women have a propensity more than men to theological deception. And thus, in your women's study groups, uh, the material does need to be screened. I prefer women, when they're teaching women, to teach on the issues the Bible gives them to teach on. Child-rearing, domestic responsibilities, godliness, piety, and things like that. But if, if the women want to do a Bible study by a woman teacher, uh, then the elders have the responsibility to read that book, and then it's taught under their authority. And the book still has no authority outside the fact that it's going to be a, a tool for the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Piper. There are other issues that we could dive into on, on this whole dynamic of women teaching theology, uh, the public versus private spaces, and the role of books in the life of the church and in the lives of individual Christians as well. And so if there are follow-ups, please send them in to us. We'd love to engage with those further. But I think our time is up today. We've covered a lot of ground um, in tackling these you know, six or seven questions, and particularly covering the ground of denominational history and distinctives. But we have a few more on our list for next time, but I'm going to need to be replenished. So if you're listening to this and you have a burning theological or practical question that or you want to send up. or a follow-up to something that we've addressed in this episode or in previous episodes, please send it in at info at gpts.edu or using the contact form at gpts.edu slash gpts-podcast. And one more shout out for the seminary with this pandemic thing unfolding and some of us trying to get back to a semblance of normalcy and others of us worried that we're going to be stuck at home for quite some time and that's interrupting plans, particularly for prospective seminary students. I want to give a plug for Greenville Seminary's faculty. They've been committed to accessibility of theological education to men who are called to serve Christ's church in some capacity or other. And so they've made it a priority to maintain a fully-fledged, full-orbed distance program here at the seminary. And we've been doing this for upwards of 20 years now. We're having men participate live in classes by audio and now audio and video, taking audio and video recordings to make available to distance students who need to take uh, studies at an asynchronous pace, you know, at their, on their own pace, and staying in touch with men and investing in them from a distance. So uh, though it doesn't replace residence um, education where you can get it, it does open up the door to theological education when doing so in residence is just not possible for whatever reason, global pandemics or otherwise. So if you're interested in that, please visit our website at gpts.edu or email us at admissions at gpts.edu. We would love to talk to you. Dr. Piper, do you have any closing thoughts before we dismiss? Pray for us. Um, of course, most of you will hear this afterwards. The Board of Trustees will meet this Friday for their year-end uh, academic fiscal year-end is June 30th year-end meeting. Uh, my intention is to open this seminary publicly uh, in August. We do have a couple of, uh, of uh, interesting uh, courses this summer. Uh, Tim Whitmer will be doing our Summer Institute on Pastoral Care. It's great material. That's going to be taught on campus, but you also, if you're not comfortable or can't, you can come online to do that. And I'm doing my elective that I do periodically as students ask for it on evaluating preachers. So we read some background material, and then we either read or listen to 10 different uh, Reformed preachers. A number of people have signed up for that. Again, you can do that uh, on, uh, in the classroom or live online.
and information on those classes is available at gpts.edu summer. Um, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions. We try to make these things affordable and open to men who are serving Christ's church as pastors or ruling elders or deacons um, or and who need a refresher or um, also to seminary students here at GPTS or at other institutions. Dr. Piper, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. Thank you, Zach. It has been, and Lord willing, we'll be back on a regular schedule now. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.